So welcome to part one of a series we're calling Spirituality for uh, the rest of us. If, if you are a guest, uh, my name is Brent, this is Eastlake, and uh, we start new series every once in a while, and they run for four, five, six, something weeks, and we focus on one specific topic and then kind of move on from there. So this, that, this is the one that we're uh, going with this week. So if you're, if you're a guest, you picked a fantastic day to come check us out, because it's the very beginning, so you'll get all of the info. Uh, if at any point I say something that uh, goes too fast or you just want to re-listen to this uh, audio or you have to miss out on the next couple of weeks and, and but you want to be a part of the series, there's a website you can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks. If you go there, this message uh, as well as all the rest of the series will be on there. And you usually go up on Monday as long as Chris is doing his job. Am I right, Chris? Anyways, okay. Um, inside of, the, uh, of your program is a note sheet. looks like this too. And you can write some things down in case I say anything interesting. I want to introduce you to, before we get going on, on the, the, the topic for today, or as kind of the, the start of the conversation, I want to introduce you to a book that I was recommended about nine years ago, eight years ago. I was doing a class uh, for continuing education master stuff, and this book is called A Secular Age by a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. It's won all kinds of prizes, it's a very expensive book, so which is why it's like $40 or something like that, which is a lot for a book for me, at least. And I remember I was in a class, and the teacher of the class was like, if you only read one book in the next 10 months or whatever, make it this book. If, there, if you only get one thing out of this class, make it this book. And, uh, and so therefore, then I went online, and like in the middle of class, and looked at Amazon. I was like, 40 bucks? Pass. Uh, and then somebody gave me a gift card to Amazon at some point, and I thought this would be a good place to, to use it. And so I ended up uh, purchasing the book. And the book is about um, why is it, it talks about secularism today, and why is it that 15, or in, in the 1500s, so 500 years ago, 517 years ago, it would have been really remarkable for somebody to say, I don't believe in God. And yet now, 500 years later, our culture has moved to the spot where that's not only socially acceptable, but some, to some degree, depending on what, which environment you're in, like uh, beyond acceptable and preferable, right? So what is this age of secularism? Super, super brilliant stuff. However, I have to be honest with you. Although I have owned this book for eight years now, I have never read this book, okay? And I'll show you why. That is why. See all those pages in there? And then I, could, I wish I could open it up for you and show you the immense amount of words and all of the letters that come together to form these really long words. And it's incredibly small typescript, and it's full. And I fall asleep in the introduction. Every summer, every summer, I tell myself, because summer for us as a church, that's usually our slow time. June, July, August, uh, people are camping. People are doing a lot, a lot of things. I don't, we don't usually do a lot of events in the summer. We wait till school year. That's when everybody seems to be home, and then kind of we get a payoff for our efforts. Um, so in the summer, it's usually that. So every summer, I tell myself, you know what I'm going to do this summer? I'm going to read Secular Age. And then I don't every year. And uh, so and the next question for you is, how did you know what the book was about? Great question. That's where this book comes along. This book is How Not to Be Secular, which is a reader on what's in this book, written by the guy who taught my class and recommended this book to me. Apparently, he went through plenty of classes, and there were plenty of people like me who would go, oh, that sounds good. I'll read that book, and then never did. And so he's like, let me help you out. I'm going to write a book to make the inaccessible accessible for you. I have read this one. That's why I know what this book's about, because here's why. Look at that. A lot fewer pages, and he uses illustrations of you know modern-day movies and the Beatles and all that kind of stuff. So I'm like, I love this. This is great. So that's 
That's what really good teachers do. They make the inaccessible accessible for us. And we do this in so many arenas of our life. Listen, when we signed a lease uh, for this building space, right, we, we kind of, we drafted some, some paperwork up and then we realized when the owner of the building gave us kind of his paperwork and we we're going to sign it and sign our life away for five years and with a five-year option, all that kind of stuff, we realized, I don't know what this means, I need to pay somebody, a lawyer, to read this and tell me in layman's terms what this means. Make, make the inaccessible accessible for me. When you bought or sold your house in the last couple of years, odds are, you know, there's, there's a piece of you that's like, how hard can it be? I just post a sign in the yard, I do an open house, and I sell it. And then you realize throughout the process, like there's things that are involved in that. There's things with the closing things and paperwork, and there's, there's offers, and then there's, you know, they come back with kind of like a, the, after the inspection, this isn't what needs to be done. There's paperwork, and you're like, I just, I want to make sure I don't get a phone call five years from now, and somehow I still own this house. You know what I mean? That's like the worst fear ever. Um, and so uh, I, I want to kind of hire somebody to make the inaccessible piece of all of the paperwork accessible for me because I'm busy, and you're busy, Right? Uh, when, when I go, I, uh, I, I just started doing this about two years ago. I've never been a hockey fan in my life. Uh, it's always been like this weird sport that, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have to be careful what I say about hockey fans. Um, but I was asked to be the chaplain for the Tri-State Americans, and so along with that came some, uh, some tickets to the games, and so I got to be able to go to hockey games, and I know nothing about what's taking place on the ice, which is why I sit in front of Sam and Becky McPeak, because Sam is a season ticket holder and knows exactly what's going on. I'm supposed to relate to these guys, and I'm looking around here going, why is everybody stopped? Why is there a whistle? What do these hand motions mean? Why are grown men allowing teenage boys to punch each other in the face, and we're all watching? No, now we're not even watching. We're cheering for this as a crowd, and we're actually disappointed when this doesn't take place in the game, right? Uh, and, and so he'd be able to explain, well, this is icing, this is, you know, shop, or, uh, cross-checking. I, don't need, I still don't know what a cross-check is. I'm working on that. But there's all kinds of different rules because I, it's inaccessible to me. I find myself drifting towards things that make the inaccessible accessible for me. For some of you, that's the reason why you like Eastlake, and you've never been able to put terms for it. But for the first time ever, you feel like uh, you, it's making the inaccessible piece about what it means to grow in spirituality accessible for you, which is awesome. That's kind of the goal. It's why we, when we sat down in the living room uh, almost seven years ago now, and Chris and Karen were there along with a bunch of other people, and we said, listen, uh, the church has not done a very good job of following the footsteps of Jesus of making the inaccessible accessible. Jesus was a master at that. Jesus uh, when he taught about God, would use illustrations and parables and stories that the everyday man and everyday woman would know. He would say the kingdom of heaven is like a field. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a stone that you find or a jewel that you found buried in the ground, and you want it so badly, and so what you'll do is you'll sell everything you own to be able to purchase that field so that stone or that diamond or that emerald or whatever can be yours. The kingdom of heaven is like the field, like the, the birds of the field. And he would, he would use all kinds of illustrations. When he came on the scene, he was introduced into a religious system where only those who had a certain pedigree or a certain level of education or a certain amount of wealth or a certain amount of knowledge or had kind of things figured out had access to the religious system and just trust us when we tell you what God is like. And in that religious system, there would be people who, would, who come up against the inaccessibility of God and then just be like, you know what, I just don't want to have anything to do with it. And so Jesus, who knows more than any of those people, comes on the scene. And what does he do? He makes the inaccessible 
accessible. So I feel like, we feel like, as a church, if we aren't a part of following Jesus in that way, we're missing out on a big deal. If people are coming into our building, spending an hour with us on Sundays, walking out, and still feeling like this whole spirituality thing is inaccessible to me, like I don't get it, I don't understand it, it's not, it doesn't feel like it's up my alley, it feels out of reach for me, it feels like I've got to behave somehow in a certain way before I can belong in a community like this, then we are missing it. Then we perhaps are not following Jesus in all of this. And so why is that? How did that come to be? Why, why is the inaccessible still inaccessible in a lot of churches? And so, and, and, and what, do, what, what is it that we have tried to think about and, and do? So uh, there are a few things as a church, when we sat down in that living room and said, this is what our church is going to be at. This is what we want to be known for. This is what we want to be inherent in our DNA. We want people to feel this, even if we don't have to explain it to them. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about in this series. Those are the elements by which we don't probably bring them up all the time, um, but I, I think that they have become realities, they become part of the fabric of the DNA of an environment like this and of a church like this. And if we are not careful, we may drift from those if we do not uh, maybe periodically check on them and, and, and determine their value and relive their importance in us. So that's what we're going to be doing for the rest of the series. To talk about the very first one, um, or to give the overall direction of this series, I want to talk about something that's called the blank slate theory. Okay, Blank slate theory. Here's what it is in essence, and this is not just a religious thing, this is just a life in general thing. If other people knew what I know, or have experienced the things that I've experienced, they would pretty much see life the way that I do. When you come up against somebody who has a different opinion than you on something that you hold and some value that you treasure, ethic or moral that you hold, you would say, and, and they would say, I hold truth, and their truth is different than your truth, you would say, well, if you knew what I know and experienced what I know, we would, you would be in agreement with me. The fact that you hold on to something different means that you know, you, you're not quite there yet. And it, it feels very intolerable, and it's something that we use to justify our logic because we are rational and logical beings, and those who hold an opinion different than us are illogical, but someday they'll come around and they'll be just like me. That's kind of how blank slate theory works. And we don't like to admit that we think like this, but if we are honest with ourselves, this is a lot of time how we operate in the actual world and in our actual way of being. Um, if you, have you ever uh, talked to somebody who has a different... It's, this shows up in a big way in the arena of politics um, because the newspaper tries, supposedly, it's supposed to present, here's the unbiased facts of something, and then you guys get to interpret and read it, and, and, and yet there are people who read the same article as you and have completely different opinions on how all of this works out, and, and never, I mean, I don't know, it feels like never more so in the era of <laughs> Trump politics has this been true. However, it's probably true of every arena. In fact, uh, I went to, uh, out to dinner with this guy uh, recently, and we got talking, and he was asking questions about the church and about all kinds of stuff, spirituality and, and, and everything. And we got talking, and we agreed on so much. Something came up in the arena of a certain, I'm not even going to say what it was, but a certain area of politics. And we, he presented he, you know, all of these data sets, and we said, yep, 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 yep. And then his conclusion 
was far different than what mine was. You ever had a friend like that? And you're like, how do you see the world like that? How is that possible? And I, I didn't say that out loud. I just chewed on my burger and said, uh-huh, 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 and just get out of there. That's the, that's the goal, right? People can see something different, and it can mean so much to them. And yet for you, it's not the same. And they think, well, someday you'll get around. Do you have a friend who really enjoys running? Like they love running? And you're like, why do you love running? And they're like, oh, if you only knew. If you know what it feels like, that feeling that comes in your bones when your alarm goes off at 4.30, and you're like, yeah, I'm up and ready. When you pull on those stretchy Lycra pants, you're like, okay, this is, now we're starting to feel it. And you get out there and and maybe you don't feel it for the first six miles if you run, but then after that, you settle into a groove, and there is nothing like running, so they say. There is something about it that just, you, it, it, there's a freedom, there's a, uh, there's, there's a, a presence, there's a, something about it that is just amazing. And you're like, eh, I still prefer Netflix. I just, there's, that's how I operate, you know what I mean? And they would say, well, you're just not there yet. You'll get there. And I'm like, I won't, though. I'm not going to get there. Blank slate theory. That's how this works. When it comes to spirituality, unfortunately, we do the same thing. We have a hard time accepting the validity of expressions of the Christian faith that are radically different than our own. Perhaps this is a reason that the inaccessibility of God and of theology and of, of spirituality has been so prevalent in Christian world, and especially in the church world, is because churches, um, churches operate with what's called a one-size-fits-all spirituality. If you want to know God, if you want to follow in his footsteps, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, then here's what you need to do. This is what it looks like. Attend this class, read this book, memorize this scripture, do something very, very specific, and then you'll do it. And then what happens is, unfortunately, some of you have tried that. You've been a part of a church before, and, and you got you came into an environment just like this, and you said, so what do I got to do to grow? Because this is a great question for um, a lot of people have about the style of church that we do. You guys are so great with outreach. You're great at getting people in, but then what do you do with them while they're here? And they want this system. They want this map. They want this roadmap. And, and we've tried to do some sort of a roadmap on the back of your program. But again, every time I talk about it, I'm always like, it's very loose. It's very loosey-goosey. You don't have to go in order. You can do whatever you want. I'm trying to be flexible on this. Because a lot of times people try something and they're like, eh, didn't work. And then they throw the whole baby out with the bathwater and be like, maybe I'm just not into God or this whole spirituality thing just doesn't work. I've found it to be, I, I've tried it and it's too difficult or uh, it seems too difficult and I'm not, I'm not even going to try it. And then for some of you, it's a little bit different. For some of you, spirituality has been very, very easy to go off of. Spirituality has been super easy. I, I know exactly. And every time something's offered, I take it and I, I feel great about it. That's great. Good for you. This has not been a problem for you. Cool. Then this is how you're going to understand the rest of us and why that has not been always true for the rest of us. All right? So in order to illustrate this, I want to talk about a guy who shows up in Scripture. Um, he shows up in all four of the gospel accounts, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the three, four people decided to write stories about the person and the teaching of Jesus. All of them include things about him. Some of them overlap and they tell the same story. Some of them have unique takes on things that happened to Jesus or things that he said. Uh, for instance, the birth of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas time only appears in Matthew and Luke's account. Mark says nothing about it and neither does John. They both start later on in Jesus' life. There are a few things that all four gospel writers tell, and for most people who study scripture, then that thing, that means 
it was either the most important things or definitely happened or whatever. And one of those things is a guy by the name of John the Baptist. His actual name is just John. We just attached the Baptist. So, and I, I say it because if you grew up in church, that's how you know John the Baptist. And um, I used to think uh, in like high school that John the Baptist, like I, I had Baptist friends and they would use it like a noun. I would say, what church do you go to? Oh, we're, we're Baptists. Not like I go to First Baptist Church of Pasco. It was, oh, we're, we're Baptists. And so I thought John the Baptist was just John who happens to be a Baptist. Like John the Mormon, John the Catholic, that sort of thing, right? That's not what's actually taking place here. John was a character in Scripture who stands out. It, it almost looks like he doesn't belong. Because he's the most Old Testamenty New Testament character to ever show up. And that's on purpose, okay? The Old Testament is filled with all kinds of different things. They're called the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, this is what was uh, important, the, the religious uh, collection, library of books for the Jewish people to try and understand their heritage, where they came from, what they're about, what their you know, uh, national identity has been, and the ups and downs of all of this. And one of the sections of the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures, is a section called the Prophets, <coughs> Major and Minor Prophets, Major being uh, their book sizes were bigger, and Minor being that they were smaller. And the Prophets were an interesting bunch, if you've ever read through some of them. Uh, they had guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah, who were kind of the more popular ones. Um, but uh, then they had some kind of oddball ones, too. Ezekiel, one of the stories that Ezekiel had um, was, and they all engaged in, like, they're going to be the mouthpiece of God to the people. And so they would engage in what's called guerrilla uh, uh, art, basically. I'm, God would tell them, I'm going to have you do something to illustrate the message that I had. It's not enough to just say words about what I think about my people. I want to sh show them through something crazy that you're going to do. So Ezekiel, what I want you to do is I want you to take your own feces, I want you to put it over a fire, and I want you to cook it. And then I want you to show people that they're crap, basically, is what happens, right? Which is like, oh, what, is, what are you talking about, Brent? You should read your Bible more. It's amazing. You think it's not interesting. It's super interesting, okay? One of the disciples, or one of the prophets, sorry, has to lie on his side for a couple of hundred days on, on one, can't roll over to the other side to show uh, some sort of a, again, there's purposes in all of it. It sounds crazy. It sounds weird. You're like, see, that's why I don't like church in the Bible. I get it. I understand. He's trying to illustrate, trying to be artistic, okay? People do crazy things in art all the time, and you kind of let that slide. That's what's happening with these prophets. Anyways, the prophets are a weird bunch, but they have this, this kind of artistic bent to them that is trying to communicate a message. Then in the New Testament, what we see is basically the last of the Old Testament prophets showing up. Okay, there's a 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years after all of that stuff takes place, Elijah shows up on the scene, and he comes out. It says he comes out of the wilderness. He's kind of like the, he's got this long beard before it was cool. It's cool to have a long beard, and like he's dressing in animal skins. He's got this weird diet. It says they eat grasshoppers and honey, and, and for most of my life, I thought, that's a weird diet. Uh, why would you do that? And now there's like this keto thing and paleo thing, and it's not as weird as before. And by the way, if you go to a Mariners game right now, do you know what's for sale at a Mariners game? Toasted crickets with like seasoning on them. And there is a line out the door to eat them. So don't point at this and be like, that's weird. Who would ever eat that? 
you do, because you want to see what it's like at a Mariners game, okay? So anyways, I, that's a, a side note. But he comes out of the woodwork, and everybody there is looking at this John the Baptist character going, kind of wacky, um, saying a bunch of stuff about repent, and, and I'm preparing the way of the Lord and the Messiah, and, and I am the Elijah that is prophesied about, because there's this prophecy about the, the Jewish people believed that there would be a, a Messiah who would come, basically like the Neo of the Matrix, and fix everything. But before he came, Elijah had to come. They weren't sure if that was a reincarnation of the prophet Elijah or some other person whose name was Elijah or whatever. And John shows up and goes, I'm Elijah. I'm preparing the way of the Messiah who is about to come. Kind of a crazy deal uh, with all of this. He, uh, and then one day, Jesus shows up. This is in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus shows up to the site where John is engaging in what's called baptism. John had this weird thing where um, if you believed, if you believe in what I'm saying, if you believe that I am the one who comes out of the wilderness, who's paving the way of the Messiah, and that everybody, that the world is in bad shape and needs to repent, then line up because I'm going to dunk in some water. We're going to do this. I'm, I'm going to, uh, that's the word, dunk. Baptizo means to dunk. Um, it was a made-up word. Baptism is a very it's a religious word. All it means is to dunk something. There's a, a pickle recipe back that they found uh, several thousand years old talking about we're dunking the pickles into the pickle juice. Uh, that, I mean, it, it, so we've made it a spiritual word, but it really wasn't even that much. But So he's known as John the dunking man or John the washing man. Why? Because everybody lines up to get dunked by this guy, and Jesus shows up on one of these days. He lines up. He gets in the line. He's going to be dunked to affirm the message of John the Baptist that he was the one who prepares the way of the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah, and you've come to prepare the way for me. By getting dunked by you, I am affirming your role and essentially then my role as the Messiah. Uh, John performs the baptism. And this is, then the story goes, in Matthew chapter 13, you can read this on your own, but um, the story goes, this is the, at that moment, the the skies parted, a dove descends down from the sky, lands on Jesus' head or shoulder, and then the audible voice of God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And you've always thought, see, that's what I need, God. Because there have been times where I've doubted your existence, but if you did that, I'm in. I'm sold. But unfortunately, every time I close my eyes and pray and be like, let me just wake up tomorrow, and if there's $10,000 in my bank account, God, I will know that you are absolutely real and I will be all, you know, all yours. And, uh, and then it never happens. There's never any audible voice, and we're like, we're left with this nothingness. But if we had something, for sure we would believe. That actually happens with John. Then, now we're going to fast forward eight chapters, Matthew chapter 11. It's probably several months, maybe even a year or two in advance. John is now in jail. He's in jail because... As a prophet, he's called to kind of point out things that make people uncomfortable, uh, both about them from a nationalistic standpoint, but in, the, in this case specifically, he calls out King Herod because King Herod is in, a, he is in an incestual relationship with his niece or daughter or something like that, and, so he, and he won't stop talking about it. And King Herod's like, like, I'm trying to sweep this under the rug, man, and you keep bringing it up. And he's like, well, it's gross and sick and you shouldn't have done it, Right. Well, I'm going to throw you in jail. And so John is in jail, and Jesus is out, and Jesus' popularity continues to increase while John's is now decreasing because he's in jail. John has a few of his disciples. He sends two of his disciples to go talk to Jesus and ask him what's going on. And here's what he says. When John, who was in prison, this is in chapter 11, and 
starting in verse 2, when they heard about the, dis- the deeds of the Messiah, that's an important word, we're going to come back to that, the deeds. He sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, a.k.a. the Messiah, or should we expect some- someone else? I thought that you were the Messiah, because when I pulled you out of the water, there's a dove there, and there's the audible voice of God, but now I'm not so sure, which is crazy, right, because we would think, oh, that's all I need, and then I'm sold for life. But John's not sure anymore. And why is he not sure? Because he heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He heard about what he has been doing. And he thought a Messiah wouldn't do some of the things that you're doing. Jesus, I have heard through the grapevine, correct me if I'm wrong, you have been showing up to parties. You've been hanging out and dining with sinners you have allowed prostitutes to wash your feet with their hair. You went to a wedding party, and when they ran out of wine, you didn't smile, clap your hands, and think, good for them, finally, now we can get on with the real celebration. But you actually gave them more wine, and apparently a lot more, and apparently the quality was a heck of a lot better. You're not acting the way we thought you would act. We've heard that you're super popular. We heard that things are growing, but we don't agree with the means by which you're doing all of these things. We've heard that you're a church that welcomes people uh, of all kinds of, you know, wherever backgrounds and spiritual baggage they come from, but we've also heard that you're doing a party this summer and alcohol is involved, and yeah, the money's going to charity, but... We're not really sure about how all of that works out and if you're really Christian or not, because it doesn't sound like you are, <laughs> right? It's tongue-in-cheek. That's a little bit, um, I'm being cynical with that, all right? But this is, this, is, this is John going, I thought you were one thing, but I'm really confused at this point, um, because you're not doing things the way I think that they should be done and how spirituality looks for me. John was left to wonder, is this man who we thought he was, and if so, why is, he, why is he acting this way? And Jesus does not attempt to defend himself. Well, John doesn't know what he's talking about. Let me tell you what's going on. Uh, our defense, whenever people, uh, when I've recommended to people, you know, when they come and ask, well, what's this East Lake Church about? It seems like it's not really even a church or something like that, or uh, I don't even know if they like Jesus. Drink your drinks. Um, we always tell them, hey, just tell your friends it's worse than you think, and then just walk away, and that's it. It's always worse than you think here, right? Because uh, it keeps the people away that probably need to stay away or whatever, and, keeps, and then the people who need to be here are, like, intrigued, and they want to come check it out in here. So anyways, but Jesus doesn't do anything like that, which is probably a better way of handling it. He says, tell John the things that you see and hear. I'm not even going to tell you what to tell him, but tell him what's happening. The blind are seen, the lame are walking, the people who have leprosy are being healed, the dead are rising from the dead, and the gospel is being preached to the poor. I love that one. He saves it for the very end, but listen to what he says. The good news about God's coming kingdom is reaching even those who formerly probably aren't qualified to be a part of the religious community, the poor. The good news is being preached to the poor. Jesus essentially 
says this. I put that in parentheses so that you didn't think that this is actual text. This is Brent's version of what he said. But the proof of my ministry isn't the method, but the fruit. The proof of my ministry, don't look at the methods, look at what's being produced in this way. Then it goes on, verse 7. As soon as uh, John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John and said, my crazy cousin John, what a guy, am I right? Well, it doesn't sound right. You're right. You should read your Bible more. Here's what he actually says. What did, you, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? He looks at a lot of Jesus' disciples were probably former John disciples who had kind of, kind of moved on and, and people knew about John's history stuff. And so he asked them this question. What did you think you were going to go out in the wilderness and see? A reed swayed by the wind? In other words, somebody who kind of like flip-flops on what he's, he has no convictions about it. It's just whatever the flavor of the day is. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? I mean, clearly he's not that. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? What did you, what did you want to see when you went out there? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. And then he goes on, he says, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you and will prepare your way before you. In other words, he came and preached his message about being the, uh, the, the primary, you know, uh, waykeeper for the Messiah, and Jesus affirms this. Verse 11, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Yes, what he does is not downplay John's significance. What he does is not discredit John's methods. He doesn't say, well, that's one way of doing things, but here's a completely better way, he, which I think is a lot of times our temptation when it comes to religion. Again, spiritual means or ways of carrying out spirituality that doesn't match up with what we value, whether a church is more conservative or more liberal than us, if the fruit is there, we, time, we sometimes look at it and be like, well, I mean, that's not really how we do it around here. Uh, and then he goes on to, what can I compare this generation they're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, which is like a funeral song, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Somebody shows up, he's too conservative for you. Somebody shows up, he's too liberal for you. What is it that you want? You don't even know what you want. You just have this animosity against everything, and you're using this to justify your reasoning for this. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. The proof is not in the methods, but it's in the fruit. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. One lived in isolation, waiting for people to come to him. The other traveled from town to town, seeking out sinners. One followed a strict religious diet and fulfilled the rigors of a Nazarite vow. That was one of the things, the reason why he had his hair the way he had his hair, his beard uncut, his clothes the way it was, the diet that he ate. It was this Nazarite vow that was kind of like this thing that re super spiritual people could take, but only for a season of time because it's unrealistic to keep it for your entire life. And he was trying to do it for a long period of time, showing his dedication to self-immolation, basically. I, I will deny myself some of the things that I can have to kind of prove to you how much, how much, how committed I am to the cause, God. The other attended parties, lots of them, and was known for turning water into wine. The differences were so great that even their followers are confused. 
Are you even on the same page? Do we even worship the same God? Is this, what is all of this about? And yet Jesus doesn't waste time discrediting John's method. He praises John the Baptist and says what? Nobody has, anybody that has been born of women is, is, falls under the category, falls underneath John's dedication. I mean, those who've been born of women, I'm pretty sure that's hovering around 100%. I think, I think it's code for everybody, okay? I think that's what he's saying. And he's saying, none of us are any better than that. John's disciples wondered how Jesus could be the Messiah, and Jesus' disciples were equally confused about John. Yet Jesus made it clear the Father was greatly pleased with both of them. Not the methods, but the fruit. Not the methods, but the fruit. So, when we started this church, we said that this idea of a one-size-fits-all spirituality didn't work for all of us to say this is how you grow through either Bible study or scripture memorization or worship or whatever. That works for some, not to discredit that, but to say that there are multiple avenues by which we can grow and follow Christ. Just the Today is really just about the availability of it. I haven't even gone into some of the ones that we think are important. That's what follows in the rest of this series. But the approach of saying one size fits all just doesn't necessarily line up with what we see modeled, I think, in Scripture, which makes sense. How many times have you bought an article of clothing that said one size fits all and it fits perfectly for you? Never. I was like, one size, I'm out. You know what I mean? Even hats, you're like, Hats fit differently. I know it's one size. I know there's buttons and straps and spandexy, whatever that material is. But come on. Some hats just fit better than others, don't they? I'm preaching about hats now. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> Being sponsored by hats. No. Um, so two questions as a result that lead us and push us towards this series. Ready? Could God be pleased with those whose walk with him is as different from ours as John's was from that of Jesus? Could it be that God is pleased by a path? Uh, I, I say this to make space for us, but also so that we don't start a church and then point fingers back at all of the other churches and be like, you got it all wrong. That's not, not it. That's not what we're about. But when I look at Jesus and John and their relationship, I got to think that there's space for a variety of ways to be able to determine and define what spirituality is looks like? And is it possible that both of them um, can be a part of what it means? Is it possible that some whose journey includes choices, practices, and a lifestyle far different from our own actually knows God as well as or better than we do? When we operate with a blank slate theory, we carry that in and we carry that into our spirituality. We think that we've got it figured out. But I hope that this text rocks our categories a little bit and opens us up to the reality and the option of saying perhaps somebody whose choices, practices, and lifestyle are far different from me, perhaps they can know and love and worship the same God that I do. Maybe there is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all spirituality. Maybe when posed the question, Jesus or John, the answer is a simple Yes. 
So, what then would spirituality for the rest of us look like? What would be some of those things? What are those options? What are the things that are out there? What are the pathways forward? That's what we're going to talk about. Not today, but moving forward. And when we say, don't judge the methods, but the fruit, what kind of fruit are we talking about? In closing and brief, and I don't even have this text on the notes, but Paul writes a letter to a church in Galatia. And towards the end of his letter in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, he talks about what life lived by the Spirit would look like. Um, that the Spirit guides us in all truth and points us towards Jesus. And here's how you know that your life is being defined by the Spirit. Are you becoming more kind? Are you becoming more loving? Is the pathway leading you to be more gentle, more patient with others, less reactive, more full of self-control, more characterized by goodness, gentleness, faithfulness? Is it becoming more in that way? Can we judge it by the fruit and not the methods? And then how do we do that? What is the, what is, if it's fruit, then is it something we try hard for? I'm going to try and be more loving, or is that a natural expression of something that we do? Yeah. That's the direction of the series. That's what we're going to be talking about. I hope you come back for future parts of spirituality for the rest of us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see how this has played out in our life individually and then also corporately as a church. That as we as a church attempt to define and give people steps forward, attempt to make the inaccessible accessible, forgive us for those times where we have uh, probably written it down in Sharpie when it should have been done in pencil and said this is our best guess forward. And may we evaluate some of our discipleship and some of our growth, not by how many people go through or some sort of numbers, but and even in our own lives, but am I growing more loving? Am I growing more kind? Am I growing more gentle and patient and peaceful and ability to have self-control with my life, gentle and all that? So give us the wisdom to know how this plays out corporately as a church and individually as a person, and the wisdom or the courage to do something about it in your name. Amen.